Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Sharon James, explaining why Christianity is good for the world now and in ages past. We are in a sinful world. You find injustices in every country, but in countries that have got that Christian foundation behind their development of democracy and human rights, those are the most stable and safe and prosperous countries to live in today. Sharon James, next. In today's conversation, Dr. Sharon James will show that through history and around the world, true followers of Christ have challenged injustice and abuse, provided care for the needy, and much more. She's social policy analyst for the Christian Institute in the UK and author of numerous books. Today we'll be discussing her booklet, Is Christianity Good for the World? Sharon, what are you arguing in a nutshell in this brief booklet? I'm answering the argument that many people put forward now, which is that they sincerely believe that Christianity is not only wrong, but they believe it's harmful and dangerous. I'll give you one example. We have a very prominent LGBTQI plus campaigner in the United Kingdom at the moment. And last week she came out and said that in her view, Christian young people should be protected from going off on summer camps because they're really dangerous. In other words, she is implying that Christian summer camps should be closed down. Now, how do you answer that? You could just throw your hands up in horror, but I think it's more constructive to say, let's look at the real-life impact of Christianity. It's good. Let's look at the real-life impact of non-Christian worldviews. They don't work so well. So I've written books about that, but as you say, this is a very short resume of those arguments. Well, this uh, conversation is not about this, but I want to ask this right at the top, because as we get into these various areas, the impact of, of Christianity on the world in history, on the world currently, on governments, and many other things, perhaps is not that well known. And I'm wondering if you could comment on to why it seems that that truth is obscured, and, and, and especially, as you said, since the current narrative rarely attributes positive social outcomes to Christian influences. I think in the West, there's been something of a crisis in history teaching. I am a history teacher by profession, and I was teaching in schools and colleges 30-some years ago, but there's been a huge shift whereby very na- very much now history can be just regarded through a narrow tunnel vision of how can we see our own current agenda reflected in history, whether that be feminism um, or the whole equality narrative or whatever. I find that people who've come from Eastern Europe, from Asia, from Africa, who I speak to here in London, who've had a, what I would call a more traditional history uh, teaching, which we would think of as the classical curriculum of the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, and then right on through the rise of the West. That broad overview, sweeping overview of history, people have had that realise that what we regard now as progress in terms of freedom and in terms of prosperity, that is all built on a biblical worldview. But the way that many young people, certainly in the United Kingdom, are taught history, and I would guess in some public schools in the United States, you get little little topics. Let's look at slavery. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. And they're taught in a very partisan way, very often, sadly, and through a very narrow focus. So people don't actually realize the riches of what we enjoy now, why we should be grateful for it, and on what it's been built, a.k.a the biblical worldview. And as I understand it, Sharon, this is, this is in one sense, really how the gospel, how, how Jesus changes individual lives and, and then in turn societies. And so I'm wondering if you could 
briefly tell us what is the gospel and how does this change occur in a person's life? The really good news, which I was brought up to believe and know, is that I am not here on this earth just to fulfill myself and enjoy myself. I have a higher purpose. God has put me here. I'm created by the most glorious and beautiful God to know him and enjoy him and to serve other people, because that is what obeying his commands means. The gospel is that we can be liberated from our own instinctive desire just to fulfill ourselves. We can be liberated to know and enjoy the infinitely holy God, because he has provided a way out of punishment for our sin and liberation from that sin, he then empowers us by the Holy Spirit to love him and serve others. And that's a truly transforming thing. And as you look through history at living Christians who found their lives transformed in that way, they have very often been at the forefront of self-giving service to others, whether that be in healthcare or education, philanthropy, um, good political contribution in terms of contributing as citizens, um, it's a good story to tell. God really does uh, take broken sinners such as myself. Uh, you know, none of us, none of us are, there, there is sin in all of us, but mm. God can help us and, and change us to be able to serve others. Injustice uh, and abuse challenged, uh, caring for the needy, serving uh, others, serving the poor and so on. What is it in biblical teaching which, uh, and I, I realize it's not one thing, but that, that uh, just encourages this kind of uh, outreach? I'll, I'll highlight two things. First, every single human being is not a random collection of cells just evolved out of slime, going nowhere. We are created by the infinitely glorious God in his image, and therefore every human being, whatever their, um, if you like, appearance, somebody might write off somebody as being useless. Nobody is useless. Every human being, whoever they are, has an intrinsic dignity and worth because created in the image of God. Second of all, the Almighty God sent his Son to become human, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, was human from the moment of conception. And so from the moment of conception, human life carries a dignity because our God became incarnate as a single cell. And then Jesus Christ modelled self-giving service even to the point of giving up his own life for others. And he calls us to do the same. So there's that dignity of essential dignity of humanity, and there's also that glorious model that real, real greatness is self-giving, not self-grasping. And that's the genius of the model of leadership laid out in scripture. The king in the Old Testament was like a shepherd, um, somebody who led his people for the good of the people, whereas in pagan cultures, um, in other cultures, leaders become tyrants who are there to serve themselves and their own interests. God's way is very different. He calls rulers to rule on behalf of their people, and all of those rulers will be accountable to him too. An equal standard for rulers as for the rule. That's re revolutionary as well. Well, my guest is Dr. Sharon James. She is social policy analyst for the Christian Institute in the United Kingdom, and we're talking about her new booklet. Uh, it can be read very quickly. Is Christianity Good for the World? And Sharon, in the booklet you write, in the Western world, the U.S., uh, the U.K., and, and, and a number of other countries, we tend to take freedom for granted. It's, it's really the atmosphere that, largely, that we, we live in, and of course it hasn't been the norm throughout history or even really in the world today. C can you talk about the connection between our freedoms that we enjoy and Christianity? Yeah. It's a great uh, misunderstanding that some secular people have, some so-called progressive people have, that 
our freedoms are based on the so-called enlightenment. And what they mean by that is the secular enlightenment, enlightenment of the 18th century, particularly as found in France, where philosophers such as Voltaire, um, Rousseau, had this idea that humans can effectively perfect themselves and they could do that by throwing out any appeal to authority. Of course, they were reacting against the repressive Catholic Church. That was the context of it. But the upshot was they wanted to throw out God. They wanted to throw out the Bible. They said, we can, by human reason, unaided, solve our problems. I tell you what, Bill, fast forward to the 20th century, where you see atheistic regimes liquidating millions of people. That's the end result of human reason, unshackled from any transcendent authority. Wiser people say, well, look at the Enlightenment in the United States and in Britain, where there was a greatly much more Christian uh, foundation and influence on many of the Enlightenment thinkers. And you had more of an understanding that when you look at, for example, the issue of uh, freedom of speech, that is based on the truth that as human beings, we've been created by God and we are answerable only to God for what we have in our conscience. So the state can tell us how to behave and it can make rules to do with our behaviour, but no state has the right to tell us what to believe or what to think. No state has the right to tell us what religion we should belong to. And that's the truth going back to creation. And it's based on early church fathers, such as Lactantius and Tertullian. It's based on Christian thinkers, such as Roger Williams um, um, in the United States, that we are answerable to God for what we believe. And that's the basis of freedom of conscience, freedom of thought. So actually, it's interesting, some secular thinkers now, such as Tom Holland, author of Dominion, are freely acknowledging that the only sound foundation, real foundation for human freedom is Genesis 1. Um, we're made in the image of God. Even even some secular people are, are, are admitting that now. So our freedoms of religion, thought, speech, mm. and more all have a, a biblical basis. Exactly, precisely. And if you look at other, well, just other countries around the world where, where Christianity has little or no influence, you would you would see by contrast you would see a lack of these freedoms you absolutely do there was a very uh, powerful two volume published by cambridge university press uh just a very few years ago 2016 and a whole international array of scholars were, were bringing forward evidence hard data to show that where bible believing christianity is spread in the world it's in those countries that have been impacted by biblical mission that have the best track record in terms of democracy, hmm. in terms of citizen rights, in terms of education of women, um, in terms of uh, freedom of political expression. By contrast, look at those regimes in the world today where there is no freedom of thought or religion or speech. It's either communist regimes, and you look at the situation in China, for example, where there are also grotesque human rights abuses, such as the treatment of the Uyghurs. And then you look at the Islamic regimes of North Africa, where still, despite protestations to the contrary, slavery still exists in some of those countries, scandalously, and I provide documentation for that in the booklet. So there's much made of the remaining inequities in Western countries. But I tell you where people are wanting to come and live, Bill. People from the more oppressive regimes are all lining up to try and get into the USA and Britain, and European countries. They are not the matrix of oppression, as some uh, some people would make out. They are actually countries, although imperfect, 
we are in a sinful world. You find injustices in every country, but in countries that have got that Christian foundation behind their development of democracy and human rights, those are the most stable and safe and prosperous countries to live in today. Well, just to push back on that a little bit, uh, Sharon, obviously, if if somebody with a different perspective was, was sitting here, they would do that. Wouldn't they say, but the institutional church, and you address this in your booklet, has engaged in much persecution and intolerance in history, and and of course there are the bad and abusive church leaders today. So how, what are we to make? And I totally, and I totally um, abhor the fact that in the name of Christ, in fact, it's so blasphemous. It's far worse when um, evil is done in the name of Christ. When evil is done by, by a secularist or an atheist or a humanist. Well, you know, you and I are appalled when, when this happens, but we're warned about it in the Bible. We're warned about it over and over in the Bible. Um, and we're told that the reality is that by their fruits, you will know them. So in the Old Testament, who is it who kills the true prophets? It's the institutional religious people of the time. And there's weeping and grieving and lamenting, and, 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 and God is horrified and God is angry at that. And then in the New Testament, who is it who kills the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, institutional religion... And then if you go into the, the subsequent sec- centuries, the heresy, which I re- would regard as a heresy, that everyone in a state should be baptized into a state church and be regarded as a Christian, you do not find that in the Bible. That's not New Testament Christianity. It's a wrongful translation of an Old Testament God choosing one nation in a particular moment of creation, salvation history. You do not transfer that into the New Testament age. The New Testament speaks for gathered church. And so... It is grievous when you see abuses done in history in the name of Christ. But we must go back to Jesus Christ himself, his teaching, God's inspired word, which is without mistake. And it provides plenty of judgment and critique on false religion. And institutional or dead Christianity is effectively a false religion. And interestingly enough, uh, sort of contrasting with that, many Christians in the world today, in the world's countries... You, you, obviously, you're very familiar with this. A lot of us are suffer various kinds and forms of persecution. Well, and what do we make with that? I mean, Christianity is the most persecuted religion worldwide, I and mean, any religious persecution is horrible. You and I hate it if people of any faith are badly treated for their beliefs. We believe in freedom of belief for all. But of the religious groups, the most persecuted are the Christians, and I think that we just see this. As, as, a, as, a, as a committed Bible-believing Christian myself, I do see this on the level of a spiritual battle. Mm-hmm. There's an extraordinary uh, passage in Revelation that speaks of the, the dragon making war on the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Uh, I think that there is a uniquely um, hostile drive against true believers who follow Christ. But I think that the other extraordinary thing i mean christianity is 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 so there's so much that's paradoxical uh all men will hate you because of me we're warned of that we're warned of that opposition and then we are told he who stands firm to the end will be saved and there is a particular glory when the holy spirit enables believers to suffer graciously and love their enemies and i've seen this happen where people who are abominably treated violently treated do not retaliate they do not hit back they do not insult back they pray for their oppressors and they pray for their persecutors and we love our enemies and there's something gloriously christ-like about that which in the extraordinary providence of god i think we would say 
when we look back from eternity, we'll see that's why why it was allowed to happen, to allow believers to reflect the self-giving and patient humility and suffering that our Lord Jesus Christ showed as well. Well, and, and not physical persecution, but growing there is growing pressure to compromise our beliefs in the West, as you, you write in your booklet, Is Christianity Good for the World? And you tell, uh, as an example, a 2020 case that happened in Nevada. Students told to unlearn or undo their Christian beliefs. Can you, I, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, can you recall some of that, maybe where that happened and what, what happened? By memory, I think William Clark. The point was that that teacher was being utterly consistent and logical with the outworking of what is called critical theory, which divides society into classes of people who are viewed as the privileged and other classes of people who are viewed as without privilege, the oppressed and the oppressors. And in that framework, in that pyramid of privilege, Christians are placed as those with privilege, and therefore they are considered to be guilty of oppressing everybody else. And to that extent, Christians are told to unlearn their Christianity. You have to unlearn um, hmm. that part of you, your identity, which is viewed as oppressive and hateful. Now, I think that that whole framework of thinking of critical theory is, is, is an appalling one because it essentially denies the biblical truth that we are all sinners, whatever our group identity. We can all find forgiveness, whatever our group identity. There is a beautiful unity about the human race. We all go back to the same first parents, which is the real antidote to racism. Racism is always evil. It's condemned in scripture. But there is also in scripture an insistence on individual responsibility. You should not punish the sons for the sins of the fathers. Each one will bear account for their own sin. I could say much more about critical theory, and there's more on my website about that. But for now, this poor young man was being told, if you identify as Christian, that puts you in the oppressor class. Um, and I just think that that is an abominable message to give to young people about whatever faith or belief they have. We shouldn't put people in groups like that and then condemn them. Well, Sharon, uh, in your booklet, Is Christianity Good for the World?, you write, uh, and you've touched on this a bit, but how many positive outcomes that that belief that uh, every human is made in God's image flows from the Bible? Uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk about some of this, the opposition to slavery. Obviously, you had William Wilberforce, particularly well-known uh, in, in England for that, the opposition to abortion, and so many other things uh, that, that uh, believers are involved in really combating around the world through history and at the, in the current day. So if we move on to the broad theme of human flourishing, I begin that section with an allusion back to a great North African city called Caesarea in the third century, which was being decimated by a terrible plague. And of course, in those days, uh, people didn't have the medicines. You just had to run away from the plague. And Caesarea was virtually emptied of its population. People were dying or people ran away. And the pagans were running because they were terrified of death and they left their nearest and dearest to die. Christians, by contrast, knew they would die if they stayed, but they stayed to care for the sick and dying and to speak of the gospel to them. And many then died themselves because of that. But that example of self-giving service really impressed the pagans, and it led to people becoming Christians. And that was the story that was replicated through the Roman Empire and other cities too. And then fast forward through the centuries, Christians, because they are not afraid to die, have been willing to go into frontline situations of distress to help others. And Christians have pay played a leading role in the development of hospitals, healthcare, care for the mentally ill, care for the elderly, 
and the whole ethics of respect for human life has been built on the biblical worldview and tragically that is collapsing now in the wake of a sort of evolutionary idea that we're all on a spectrum with the rest of nature and that's weakened our culture of life and we're now having a culture of death in some western countries where in canada poor and vulnerable people are told well it might be cheaper to kill you than to care for you dreadful erosion of the christian worldview so yes human flourishing very much has been based on the idea of the dignity um, of all human beings and there's so much more that could be said about that the rise of uh, various other institutions which arose out of really the biblical ethic which <laughs> comes from jesus himself of compassion they rose very early. If you go back to the Council of Nicaea, at that very early church council, as well as the glorious affirmations of biblical theological truth, uh, the council said there should be a hospital erected in every city where there is a decent-sized church. In other words, it was not just words, it was not just action, it's what the New Testament, the whole Bible teaches. You have to have the absolute balance between right belief right experience, love for God, love for neighbour, and right practice. Provide health care for your neighbour if they're sick. Provide education for your neighbour if they don't know how to read, because everybody has should be able to read the word of God, whether they're male or female. And yeah, that's where you see, uh, contra the myth that missionaries were bad for uh, indigenous cultures. The reality is, uh, a wonderful Indian Christian called Vishal Mangalwadi has pointed out, is that biblical mission led to the transformation of nations as Bible-believing missionaries took that sort of education and that healthcare, as well as the gospel, uh, to, to, to so many nations in the world. If I recall correctly, Sharon, uh, Vishal Mangawadi uh, studied the influence. He was wondering what was the influence of the Bible, I think particularly on the United States, perhaps on uh, yes. the UK as well. It's actually even more interesting than that. He was in India as a young student, and he thought, oh, well, if the Bible says that all nations to be blessed through Jesus, did it ever bless India? So he studied the impact mm. of the Bible on India. Ah. And he democracy, education, the railways, um, integrity, these values were based on the biblical worldview. And that, that all led to his conviction that the Bible is good for the whole world. And he has, he has written very effectively about that. So Christian's involvement, I mean, there's so many things, our time is going so quickly, we couldn't touch on on all of it in, in fighting human trafficking and, and, and so many other things. Um, but, but I wanted to ask you about areas where perhaps people might not normally think of a, a Christian or biblical worldview influencing, that is, in the realms of science and even in the environment. Yeah, now that's a good one, isn't it? Because the lie is Christianity is the end of science. The truth is that the whole modern scientific process was built on the biblical worldview that there is a creator God who has put order and design into this cosmos and then created us as human beings with the intellect, with the reason after his own image to be able to discover and investigate and explore. We are called on as believers to explore and enjoy and learn more of this wonderful universe he has made. So I trace that and I say more about that in the fuller book, um, How Christianity Transformed the World as well. But then applying science, it's not just an academic thing, applying our knowledge of how things work to the liberation of human beings from needless, hard labour. So the monasteries in Europe in the Middle Ages, the monks didn't want animals and humans to be on a par, regarded, oh, well, donkeys can carry, so just let humans carry. No, if you can 
biotechnology eased the load for humans with water mills, windmills, and all the rest of it. All of these were transforming of the quality of life because humans were no longer effectively behaving like oxen and, and having to pull plows. You know, they, they, they developed ways of using oxen to pull plows rather than uh, mindless human labor. So very much there was this view that uh, we should put technology to work in responsible ways as part of our creation mandate. God gave human beings the dignity of ruling and the biblical word is subduing this world on his behalf. But that doesn't mean harmful depredation of our beautiful world. It means responsible stewardship. So I say something about how Christians responsibly take care for the environment while also saying that the resources are there for the blessing of humans and how God calls us. We are not on a par with animals in terms of being on a spectrum, like evolutionists would say, but we are called to treat them with care. And that's why evangelicals formed the first ever Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals back in the 18th century. William Wilberforce was involved with that. Hmm. Um, you know, Christians do want to treat creation and the animal kingdom well because we respect the creator. Dr. Sharon James is my guest, a social policy analyst for the Christian Institute in the United Kingdom. We're talking about her new booklet, Is Christianity Good for the World? And I know I have to let you go here, Sharon, in just a moment. So you're making the case, obviously a strong case, through history that the biblical worldview has been really the soil for human flourishing. And yet today, in the UK, in the United States, we see the decline of the Christian worldview, we see the uh, lack of, if you will, a lack of respect toward it increasingly, increasing secularization, people checking as far as religious orientation, none um, on surveys and so on. What What is the, the, the consequence for this if this decline continues and what is the, uh, is there an antidote? The consequence we're already seeing all around us, and it's very interesting that there are secularists who are waking up to the consequences. I'd simply named current feminists, Louise Perry and Mary Harrington, who are saying, oh, oh, we're in trouble because if you knock down all of these sexual boundary markers that were there as a result of traditional biblical Christianity, oh, women are exploited, children are exploited. We see increasing levels of abuse and pornography, which are terrible for women and children. Well, we could have said that. In fact, we have been saying that for a long time. God's moral law is there for the protection of human beings. So we are seeing an unraveling of a society based on God's moral law, and the impact in terms of suffering is immense, and we need to pray for a great reformation of a return and a recovery to understanding that as humans made in the image of God, we function best when we operate within the parameters of his eternal, unchangeable moral law. So the result is dark. We are seeing increased levels of sexual violence, exploitation of children, but the antidote is the true gospel. And it's interesting that in your country and mine, where you see churches growing, they're not the liberal churches that deny every single tenet of human faith. Those churches that deny everything tend to be not doing so great. But healthy Bible-believing churches, they're still seeing young people come to faith. They are still seeing people live uh, sacrificially godly lives, making an impact in their communities. And around the world, certainly in the global south, the churches that are growing are those that still believe in the supernatural and the truth of God's word, rather than the so-called progressive churches, which deny 
even the fundamentals of the faith, such as the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. So hold on to biblical truth. The grass may wither, the flowers may fall. God's word stands forever. We believe that. We hold on to that. And we hold on in faith as we pray for the promises of the gods to be fulfilled, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. As I often say, nothing is impossible with God. So we have every reason to hope and to pray and to work for God to honor his name in our world. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Sharon James, social policy analyst for the Christian Institute in the UK and author of the booklet, Is Christianity Good for the World? For more information, go to SharonJames.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Brett McCracken telling us to beware of the temptation to pursue respectability as a Christian in the world. Even myself in certain seasons in my past where... Because I knew that saying certain things or aligning myself with certain biblical positions would basically like close doors for me in terms of advancing in the world of art and entertainment, I I, I was maybe too quiet or, or too ashamed of certain aspects of my faith. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening. 